Hello and welcome to Season 2 of the Coach Emmanuel podcast, hosted by me, Danny Mills. Today I'm joined by former Blackpool, Leeds United and most recently Sunderland manager Simon Grayson. Simon enjoyed a career as a professional footballer, playing for some of England's top clubs, including Aston Villa, Blackburn Rovers, but most recognised for his time spent at Leicester City as a player in the early 90s, and then as manager of Leeds United from 2008 to 2012. So Simon, thanks for joining us. Um, Just start with, you're probably best known for playing your Leicester City days uh, under Martin O'Neill. Yeah, I would say so, yeah. Uh, Brian Little signed me before that. Um, I'd gone from playing regularly in Leeds Reserves or in around the first team till I got to 21 and then uh, got the opportunity to to really start playing and making a, a living in the game, really. And it was brought my heart to leave Leeds, but uh, from from playing reserve team football, 10, I think 10, 12 games later, I'm playing in a playoff final at Wembley for the Premier League or the Premiership, as it was then, so... It's all about uh, a learning curve and, and getting uh, your career on track. And how different was Martin O'Neill to other managers that you'd play for? It was a lot different uh, because I was used to Howard Wilkinson, um, who was very much a hands-on coach, who, who took every session that would very, be metho- very, very methodical specific as well, in he? what he was doing, right attention to detail. Uh, from set pieces and, and and I think people don't realise Howard was quite ahead of the game in terms of his ideas for uh, new ideas that he was taking on I, board. I, I worked with Howard with the under 21s in England. Yeah, and we used to hate it. I think that, that detail, you know, filming training sessions, going into that, being microphoned up on the training pitch and all that. Because sort it was of stuff. so different to players, wasn't but, it? But looking back now, and I say to people, all the stuff that he went through. Was so right. Yeah, everything that he did was, was you're right. Was way well, ahead. Well, people of his time. talk about Arsene Wenger being ahead of the time. Well, Howard was in front of him because he was obviously won the league title with Leeds in '92, um, and he was very methodical in everything he did. He did, and and players found it difficult to deal with. David Batty was given his own ball on a Friday morning because they're doing set pieces, and Bats had a attention span of about two seconds. So Howard give him this ball. And he'd just go around and kick it around the, the other half of the pitch where the rest of the lads were doing set pieces. But his attention to detail was really, really thorough. Brian Little was very much similar, hands-on coach. Where Martin was more about his old school in terms of very much like Brian, Brian Clough. He had um, an aura about him. You probably wouldn't see him on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday you would be off. And then Thursday, Friday would come out and do a little bit of work. It was very much let Steve Walford do his coaching, John Robertson do his coaching. Um, but when he came out, you, the training increased because of this aura, as I mentioned, about him. But he knew when it was matched there how to get the best out of group of players. And that is a massive part in a coach or a, or a manager's um, role. I, I worked with Martin briefly. gave him my debut, actually, uh, when I was at Norwich. And I was similar. I, I couldn't believe how everything was purely about winning. Yeah. Style of play, coaching, almost irrelevant at times. It was I just felt it was solely about winning. And like you said, if if you won, see you Thursday, lads. Yeah. If you lost, running on a Sunday. Well it was it was one of them that sort of in modern day coaches now talk about phases of play and how are you gonna get the ball from A to B, from the back, through the lines. Under Martin O'Neill it was go out, get the work hard for the team, stick together as a group, express yourselves 
and make it hard for the opposition. And and he just had got the best out of a group of players. As you mentioned, we would even before um, a League Cup semi final, we went away to I think it was Bournemouth or it might have been Grantham actually for two days, and we never kicked the ball. Next thing we're going into the semi final of a League Cup final, and no preparation, and, and that's and how is we this, worked. Is this one of the biggest things about football and coaching these days that it's trying to reinvent itself? every six months, every season. I mean, Martin used to say to us, got no interest in what happens in between the two penalty areas. Win it in our penalty area, win it in their penalty area, job done. Well, I think the modern day football now, it's very scrutinised with social media, people analysing where people are running to, where you're passing to. But ultimately, no modern day coach, Bielsa at Leeds, Potocino and Guardiola, they haven't reinvented the wheel of how football's been played for hundreds of years. It's basically keep clean sheets and score at the other end. Close, close down from the front. Exactly. Or, or, hard, or, the, this, or the Gagan press this, as we want to reinvent yeah, this, it. This pressing from the front. It's Ian Rush and Kenny Daglish were doing it back in the 80s and all the other top strikers. And it's yes, he tweaked it and gone with the day and age of changing systems and philosophies. But it's all about defending your own box, work hard for the shirt, and take your chances when they come along. And ultimately, I keep saying it, get the best out of a group of players. Play to their strengths. Obviously, probably you're getting the best out of you was probably that Wembley performance, you know, getting promoted. What what was that like? What, any memories of that in particular? Uh, when, you, when I looked at my Leicester career, it was filled with sort of ups and downs in terms of disappointment. We had two playoff finals on the trot, which you had to... Um, keep coming back for the next pre-season ready that this is going to be our year we get promoted again and fortunately I was Wembley first Leicester captain to win at Wembley against Derby going to the Premier League and then we get relegated the following year we get promoted again via the playoffs and then we win the League Cup the following year and it's learning from your experiences of disappointment that can stand you in good stead for the following season but for the rest of your career and think as a player to to win at Wembley and, and be fortunate to play there more, more than once is the highlight and the dream of any young kid growing up when you're uh, setting out on your road to trying to be a footballer. So obviously after a very very good playing career obviously you, you dropped into to management let's say that the, the clubs that you've managed you've had some interesting owners <laughs> chairman CEOs yeah you, you've, you've pretty much ticked all the boxes of uh, crazy sublime to the ridiculous uh, but obviously you started off at, at Blackpool was it always your intention to go straight into management? I was doing my badges at uh, at Blackpool while I was still playing. I was taking the reserves. And there was a lot of hard work and dedication from playing on at Bournemouth away on a Tuesday night, getting back home at probably four o'clock in the morning, to then getting ready to take the reserves at a 12 o'clock kickoff on the Wednesday. So, and, and ultimately picking up kit to put into your car, to put in other stuff in your car, taking the washing the next morning after the and, game. And this is what people probably don't realise, you know, even now to a certain extent, those lower levels, everyone looks at the Premier League and it, probably the Championship and think, oh, everything is done for everybody. Oh. There's entourages and, yeah. you know. Without a shadow of a doubt. When you, when you see Man City finish a game and, and the staff come on, there's like 50 staff come yeah, on the pitch exactly, to celebrate. Yeah. At the lower league clubs, it's not far off a one-man band, it is it? Isn't. Um, and you, and that's, it isn't. And it gives you a good grounding as well that you, you've got to make sure that um, you're preparing as well as you can and you don't want anything to be uh, any stone left unturned so my match day preparation for the reserves through find out making sure that we had 11 shirts 11 pairs of shorts and socks and I'm not joking a set of balls do we get the balls back after a warm-up because 
can't just kick them away. We'd have no balls for the for the next week's games. And this was Blackpool in League One at the time, so that set me up well. Um, as I said, I was doing my B license on the road to my A license, um, and I always thought that I would take a gradual step from reserve team coach to first team coach, and that's uh, how it was going to pan out in terms of spoke to Colin Hendry about a, a proposition that had been given to go as an assistant manager with a friend of mine. Um, he said, yes, fine. Went to Carl Oyston, uh, who said, no, I'm not letting you go. So to our amaz- my amazement, I said, why? He said, well, I'm sacking Colin and you're taking over as first team manager. <laughs> and it was sort of well, fell welcome, into it. Welcome was, to the world of owners. It, well, yeah, I was preparing for eventually, hopefully being a coach, first team manager somewhere down the line, but was thrust upon it. Um, of, or wasn't expecting to be given that opportunity and the team was struggling near the bottom. First remit was to make sure we stayed in League One and we did. Following season, managed to get the team promoted and um, from then on, within a few few days, I suppose, I, I felt comfortable in what I was doing because the biggest difference that I found from uh, in my early days at Blackpool was I was in a dressing room with players but I'd done the gradual process of taking some of them in the reserves but then becoming their mates to being the first team manager I had to take a little bit of a step back from them and and ultimately keep the um, familiar with them but also not let them think that they can take uh, things too far when when I needed them to be uh, more disciplined or accept decisions of me dropping them or releasing them they said you did incredibly well with Blackpool uh, got promotion uh, did incredibly well there 10 consecutive wins breaking a club record and then how did the offer of coming to Leeds come about, which I suppose it must have been having grown up there, played their dream managerial job. Yeah. Maybe, maybe apart from the owner <laughs> at the time. <laughs> well, as I said, I'd worked with Carl Oyston at Blackpool, which was not easy at the time. So it made you learn and develop very quickly. Um, Gary McAllister had been sacked on the Sunday morning and I got a call on the Sunday afternoon from uh, Sean Harvey, would I want to meet Ken Bates because they would like one to approach me for the job. Um, so I'd, I went over and met them. Talk about frying pan into the fire. Yeah, well, it was. <laughs> and ultimately, uh, Blackpool had taken them to mid, mid-table in the championship and Leeds were a League One club. But when your team that you support comes knocking and the size of the club, then you are going to drop down to, to a division. Um, it wasn't playing sailing trying to get here because Blackpool tried to stop me, tried to get an injunction against me coming. Um, but Ken Birch used his sort of willpower and um, many other means to get me here and ultimately um, came to work with a, another owner who was charismatic and opinionated and well-known in the game. Well, see, because I, Ken, I was, I was around sort of Leeds still at that time or slight, slightly after uh, in between those sort of periods. Dennis Weiss tried to get me back at one stage and Ken was having none of it. Um, right. at all because I think they were still paying me from, <laughs> from way back when Ken, still paying you now well that was Ken's response you can, you can imagine what that was but I always said he came in and at a di- very very difficult time he saved Leeds effectively yeah. and that there, yes there was lots of cost cut and there was all sorts of measures that maybe the fans didn't like but I sort of always respected him as an owner because he he put his money where his mouth is well, maybe it wasn't his money <laughs> but he put he put his hand in his pocket said right I'm going to Un- make unpopular decisions and, and that's what you had to do at that time yeah I think like you say the club had gone through administration he came in and and uh, ultimately played a part in in the survival yes he, he made some decisions that weren't very uh, popular with a lot of people within the club outside the club um, but he give it 
the platform to to stabilise and and try and get back to hopefully this year back to the Premier League. Um, and and yeah, he was helpful in everything that he did with myself, and I'll never not thank him for giving myself myself the opportunity to to come and manage Leeds. And we had some good times, obviously the three and, and a yeah, half. You years. had some good young players, didn't you? Yeah, you know the likes of uh, Fabian Delph. You know, came through. Yeah, they worked with Fab too it. much because he was. I came in December, and I think it was probably six months later, maybe less than that, that Fab went to ended up going to Aston Villa. But he was um, obviously a huge talent. I remember in his first game, scoring from near the halfway line against Stockport, and it was like, wow, this kid's got some talent. Um, and he inherited a squad um, of some the likes of Housen who'd come through the academy and and others. And then you, it's part of your job is to change. A mentality of a group and try and make them better with the recruitments that uh, in your recruitment process of players you're trying to bring in. I assume the the best player you had at that period obviously was Jermaine Beckford. You know, was just scoring goals for fun. I mean, how good was he? And are you a little bit disappointed he didn't really kick on after he left Leeds? It's it's difficult because people ask you who's the best player you've managed at Leeds and different types of players. you got like your Warriors in uh, terms of Kisnorbo and Richard Naylor run through a brick wall for you as a manager. You love them. You had like Johnny Alston, seven, eight out of ten every week. But Jermaine could do something out of nothing. You, either side of him, he had Max Gradle and, and Snodgrass supplying it. But Jermaine would just do something out of nothing that you'd go, wow, how has he done that? And then he'd do the other side of it, most infuriating thing where he misses a simple tapping. Or, uh, but he had confidence in his ability he wasn't he wasn't um complacent or over the top with it all he was he was focused on what he needed to do and um did I want to keep him course we wanted to keep him at the end of the season but we had a gentleman's agreement agreement with him Newcastle came in for him in the January before we beat Manchester United or that particular month was was that was that the best as, as a Leeds manager was that one of the best moments of your career going to Old Trafford yeah it's, and winning <laughs> I, I would. I always put down the. By the way, I was, I was there. I was there as. A, I was there as a fan that day. I always, and it was just amazing. I always put down the Bristol Rovers game as the most important one because we were judged over the forty-six games of a promotion. Leeds fans might disagree with that. They're, they're very close. I'm not dismissing the Man United one without a shadow of doubt. When you're walking out at the end of the game and there's nine thousand fans in the corner and, like you said, you're a part of them, you feel immensely proud that you've turned over. Not just the Manchester United, who were a um, Premier League team. They were the champions of the Premier League stage. And there was a big and, gap, wasn't there? Yeah. You know, in divisions we were, and my, we were, everything. It wasn't, it wasn't like when I played for Leeds and we, went, and we never won. When I went there, it wasn't that we were half expected to get a result. Yeah. No one gave Leeds a chance no. in that and, and I think that played into our hands a little bit, that we went there with a carefree attitude. And I remember the last things saying to the players that, somebody could walk out of this stadium today being a hero for the rest of their lives in the Leeds United uh, folklore. And obviously Jermaine was the one. And it wasn't as if it was a fluke because we felt that we deserved something to win over the course of the game. And they were very strong. They didn't have a weakened team out. They had Berbatov and Michael Owen and, and Gary Neville and Wes Brown. And they had a strong team out. But we, we turned them over in the backyard and it's one of the proudest moments. You had promotions playoff disappointments it was a really sort of it was good times at Leeds but there were so many times where you just missed out yeah. was it, can you put your finger on any particular reason or why it didn't quite get to where probably Leeds deserved to be at that point 
I think the, the first year back in the Championship, we went second at Christmas. We beat QPR, Max Scott twice. And I felt, we've got a squad here. We've got a real strong team. Going forward, we were as good as anybody with the likes of Luciano leading the line, Johnny playing as a 10, and then they had Max and, and Snodgrass. I think um, McCormack must have come in at that particular time. People like Bradley Johnson were playing really well. We, but, but you're always looking to improve every window. I've always looked on it as a manager that each window I want to try and improve the squad and that January was a great opportunity to, to maybe just improve um, the defensive areas and I wanted a centre-half to probably just be that leader because I think Naylor and Kisnobo were injured and we were a little bit sort of... As much as my philosophy was to try and win 3-2, 4-2, whatever, scoring goals, I still wanted to try and keep clean sheets to give us that better opportunity getting promotion and we just weren't backed with a couple of players that we might have needed, even just one centre-back. And I wasn't talking modern day now of three, five million. I could have got a couple of a player in who ended up playing in the Premier League for four or five years later on for half a million pounds. And, and we just got that close. And you look at why it didn't happen. That's one of the reasons. But also the expectancy level at Leeds is really hard for individuals collectively as a team to to see things through as well and get over the finish line. Um, brilliant when things are going wrong. Crowd can get a little bit anxious, but that just comes with the territory of playing for Leeds United. And that's why so many players uh, do well, but also why some fail because they can't deal with it um, um, mentally strong enough to deal with the expectancy levels. You're listening to the Coaching Manual podcast hosted by me, Danny Mills. After four years at Leeds, you went off and played, played, went off and managed Preston, uh, did very, very well there. Again, working under some, well, he wasn't the owner, was he Peter Ridsdale? Yeah, Peter, at the time. advisor to the uh, owner. Yeah, adv- advisor to the owner. Um, colourful, uh, I think you've worked under. And then, of course, another job comes up, the, the Sunderland job, which, you know, I've heard you say before, was just too big an opportunity to, to turn down. Probably, was it similar to the Leeds pull? You know, back back when you were at Blackpool at the yeah, time. Yeah, I would say so. In terms of, I'd been at Preston for four and a half years and we'd finished 11th the two years in the championship after getting promoted um, on a budget in the bottom three. Is, lot... is, is there a time during that, and, and this probably phrase gets is a bit of a cliche, I've taken the team as far as they can go. Without a whole load of investment in that Preston side, Realistically, were you going to take them any further up the table? It was always going to be difficult. Eleventh, finishing eleventh on a bottom three budget was overachieving in the in that first place. But what I'd done there is I'd developed a real good squad, got younger players from Premier League clubs, bought for very little money, made them better on the training pitch, coaching them and developing. Um, and within that period of time, I had opportunities to go to bigger clubs, but I didn't want even to come back to Leeds at one stage under Chilino, which. <laughs> Luckily, I made the right another, decision. Another colourful owner. Yeah, well, exactly. I've worked with a few, haven't I? So my my head was uh, telling me not to. My heart was saying to go back, but I decided I was wanted to stay at Preston at that time. Um, and it was it was a tough decision to make because I was going from a as much as a secure job that you can have at Preston, where I had big influence with Peter Ridsdale and who we signed, everything that we did, it was was fine. But when the opportunity for an ex-Premier League club comes knocking it's too good opportunity I don't want to go I never wanted to go through life with any regrets of what I've done and the last thing I would have wanted was 
Sunderland to go back up with somebody else in charge when I felt that I was still the right man for the job. It was a gamble because but going to Leeds from Blackpool was a gamble, which people told me not to do in the first place. But I felt that with my ability, confidence in me, what I could do, that Sunderland I would be able to achieve it. Ultimately, it's not until you go in there that you find out a lot of underlying problems that you didn't realise. Obviously, a big part of Sunderland, and we've seen lately, is obviously the, the Netflix documentary, yeah. which was, I think, pre-arranged before you'd gone in there um, and was all sorted out. How difficult, one, how difficult was it to manage that situation and how much of a of a true perspective of, of what really went on? I think anytime you do a documentary, they're always going to edit it to however the, it suits them. You look at the Manchester City one that's been out, and that's very um, organised and they've got the whatever they want to go out is through the media outlet that they use at Manchester City. Did, did so, you have any, con- were you given any control of what would or wouldn't go out? No. Ultimately, I had control of what we give them in terms of no access to the dressing rooms. Um, but it, as I said, it was already prearranged that it would happen. I would try to be as helpful as I could do without wanting to be unindated with um, interviews all the time. The players felt at first very uncomfortable doing it, that they got cameras watching training, cameras were in the um, medical room. Um, but after a while, I think they got used to them. But it was, I think in terms of the whole documentary, it was one that gives a true insight of what a football club was like. You, talk, you compare Manchester City where it's a bit more glamorised about it all. This one was really what it's like to a middle-class, working-class, should I say, uh, club where... Um, supporters earn the money and spend it on their football club and the, what the football club was going through at that particular time. And, of course, it's, I don't, I've watched it and I've agreed with things. I've not agreed with things. How, we, how I'm seen in the light of, of the manager um, frustrates me a little bit, but um, you have to deal with it. I can't I mean, change is that, it. Sadly, is that, that's the, almost the world that we live in, in Big Brother, celebrity this, celebrity that. You know, people, reality TV. Yeah. You know, snippets of people's lives, famous for 15 minutes and then disappear where you've worked all your life. Yeah, I've, worked, to I've work been a manager a, for 14 yeah, years. To, to work in a certain style and then actually you're portrayed as almost a reality TV star. That must be quite difficult. It times. is, and also within them minutes that the, you're aired, it doesn't give the true reflection of what you are as a person in terms of I'll, I've had a little bit of mourn-up situations that I'm there with a flip chart. People are, um, are, ex- are thinking that it's a motivational speech an hour or so before a, pre- a, a first-team game. Well, it was done six hours before a pre-season game as a... The licence of editing and... Yeah, exactly. It makes out that you're doing something an hour before a game where I've done pre- PowerPoint presentations, the, the Welsh Pro licence, and I can do all that. But the the documentary makes out that you only use a flip chart, and, and that's is, something from the eighties and nineties. Is that is one not... of the hardest things to manage in in modern day football? You know, the the players, the world of social media, the media, and people's opinions and perspective. Yeah, definitely. Look, social you know, media. I, I look back and some of the stuff that we there's no way we'd ever have cameras anywhere yeah. near some of our dressing rooms. No the chance. stuff that went on, but now it, is it almost you have to accept that's how it goes. Well, social media, isn't it? plays a massive part now in, in society and certainly in football. As you mentioned there, we, when we played, you get away with certain things. Players can't do that. You, I even find it bizarre now. You've, you've got these tunnel clubs at football clubs where you know, the fans are all having a meal as you walk down yeah, the tunnel yeah. and it's a glass window and they can see everything that's going on in the tunnel. I, I'm like, 
that was sacred to me, the tunnel. Well, it what is, I did in the tunnel was like, should never, ever be seen. Some of the stuff that going off in tunnels when I played and you probably played was, was that you could be arrested for. Yeah. <laughs> and that is no word of a lie that it's kicked off in tunnels and um, this day and age, everybody can see it. So, of course, it, it's part and parcel of society, as said, but there's certain aspects of it all um, that you people have got more of a reality check about sort of not taking everything for as black and white. To just talk about the documentary, Glyn Snodding, who was my assistant manager for the last 10 years or so, is one of the nicest, funniest blokes you can meet. Well, I'm, one of my other friends was doing is the uh, Q&A, he was doing a Q&A for Exeter, who's assistant manager, and somebody asked him a question saying, how would you do your recruitment? Would you follow what Sunderland do? So he said, what's that? He says, would you, re, uh, would you not sign a player for wearing gloves? And he says, what, what do you mean? He says, well, the, what, Glyn Snodden, when I watch a player uh, at Scunthorpe in August, and Snodd's jokingly said, I can't sign him, he's wearing gloves in August. And this is how sort of your people can take something out of a situation and ter- and actually think that this is like the normal what, uh, mentality of of, of how and, you're and thinking that, when that, you're not. That must make managerial situations, managing players, even harder in this day and age. Because well, it, I'm, I'm assuming now that the hardest, you know, if you're a good coach, you've you've proved that time and time again. But managing players and the way that the world is changing must be the hardest part of football. Well, I think I said it earlier on, that you can have the greatest tactics in the world, but if you don't get the best out of your group of players of man management skills, then you're on a hiding to nothing. You know what I mean? I, I've always tried to create, create an environment at the training ground where players enjoy coming into work, they'll get on with myself, have a laugh and a joke, but they know that when we're working, we're working. And when I'm not happy, they'll understand that. But I want to be approachable. I want them to be my friend to a certain degree, but also respectful of, of every decision I make. And one of the biggest things that I take pride in is that a lot of players who I work with still speak to me for advice on a regular basis from Blackpool, from all my clubs. Even recently, players are out of a team um, and and ringing me saying, what should I do? Do you think I should ask for a transfer? Should I do this? And and, and that sort of gives me a lot of pride, not just with the promotions that I've, I've done as a manager, but the respect that I've got within the players that I work with, that they can still pick up the phone to me and ask for advice, even though I'm not the manager anymore. Money has obviously changed football, um, even since I finished, where it was good. Now it's obviously off the scale. And that brings a, a whole new load of problems. A couple of things on that. Obviously, when you went into Sunderland, I think, you know, we've seen how difficult transfer deadline day can be. Obviously, it's just passed now uh, for, for January. How much did that affect you not getting any signings in in that first window at Sunderland? You know, it must have been a huge part of your plan to think of document that you wanted a centre forward, didn't get one. You'd almost banked on that. Yeah. Do you then feel like, well, actually, now I've got to try and coach with one anti behind me back? It was, I think when you look at sort of um, that transfer deadline, first month in at Sunderland, the August month, that you had players still there that didn't want to be there, but weren't good enough to get moves on, um, to other clubs. So you had to work with them. You had players that you that you'd sold. I think we brought in forty-five million pounds worth of sales, and then replaced them with twelve new players at, at the cost of one point two million. And that <laughs> is business for the owner. <laughs> that, that's good business from an owner, but it's not from a perspective of trying to bring in the quality to get a club like Sunderland back to the Premier League. I knew there was going to be restraints of where I was going to be working with, but I didn't expect to be bringing in 
12 new players at a cost of uh, just over a million pound. Um, free transfers to loans. Um, but you just try and get the best out of that group of players. And is, is that one of the hardest aspects of management these days where maybe you don't have as much control over signings yeah. and budgets as maybe you used to do when you first started? I think that's just the, how football's um, changing around. A lot of clubs now have directors of football um, who do recruitment as well. You have, I'd like to think that if I, when I go back into work, I'm happy to work with a director of football, but I would still want an influence on the people that I'm going to be signing. Some clubs don't, a manager coach doesn't have any influence on the signings that they're going to make. I'm a little bit more role school, but you've got to adapt to, to new skills and, and how football's developing. But it's a lot of it just goes down to um, getting on with the people that you're working with, but utilising the money that's available to you. But it is so frustrating. Like we're talking on that deadline date at Sunderland, I was trying to get McCormack in. I was, I was close to bringing Snodgrass in. And, and these are players that I was close to getting, but finances wouldn't allow it to happen. But the players wanted to come and play for me again. Part of that may be financial restriction. You had players like Jack Rodwell that really just huge contracts, huge money, has never really kicked on and, and had any of the potential that we expected, you know, when he was a young kid, you know, breaking through. How difficult is it to manage players in that situation that basically, you don't have to name it, you know, I'm just in, in general, players that are almost down tools and, and just don't want to play and go, you know what, I don't need to play, I've got enough money. And probably money is their motivation well, rather that, than actually wanting to play. That football. was one of the hardest, thing, hardest things to to try and correct at Sunderland was players at Preston were earning single figures uh, weekly wage and would be bursting a gut to go and run through a brick wall for you to get better to go and get another thousand, two thousand, three thousand pound a week on the wages. Where going into Sunderland, players are, are on. 20s to 30s, 40s, 50,000 pound a week. They're, they're set up for life. So they didn't have that real desire and hunger to, to really, um, when things were tough, to really dig deep and, and think, well, I'm going to correct this. They're comfortable. Where the lads at Preston yeah, were always I, striving I, 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 I to get better. I struggle with it. I struggle with that in this day and age now. You know, I, I had a good career and I made a good living out of it. But for me, it was all about being the best I could be, winning, you know, every single day training, working as hard as yeah. possible to, well, to be good. But now, it seems, and obviously I've got kids in the system, it seems like a lot of these younger players, their motivation is money. Yeah. And as as much as I really don't like that, in fact, I detest that fact, you've almost got to roll with it. And, 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 I, and I'm still sort of struggling with that notion of like, well, actually, they're, they're more concerned about earning money than they are about winning and improving. Well, there's so much money involved now to the point of... The top four, six clubs in the Premier League, their young kids are earning double figures, a weekly wage, and they've not even kicked a ball first team so a, a how, ball how for you, anybody. How do you motivate these players? It's very difficult. It's got to, a lot of, most of it has got to come within the person themselves. Else, before they know it, they might be on, say, £10,000 a week for three years, but if they haven't got the motivation, dedication, determination, that's them out of the game. They can drop suddenly from Chelsea's under-23s out the game very quickly where the real good ones will will work hard will go and make a living in the game and earn whatever money they can make um but it's money plays a huge part everything is done for them i'm a big big fan of the academy system but i'm also dis, 
think that is a hindrance as well in terms of I think kids day and age now are given the best opportunity, the best coaching, the best number of hours to be able to do things, but also they have everything done for them as well. That they don't learn responsibility. They don't if something happens on the pitch, they look straight across to the coach. We've growing up, we try we problem solve ourselves or with our teammates on on that particular pitch. Now they they get they can't even probably get to the training ground without like um, somebody dropping them off or using the phone for an app or something like that. There's no responsibility within the young young modern day footballer. Well, you've had you've obviously experienced that at first hand as a manager, as a coach. But obviously, your son came through the Blackburn system um, and obviously has now moved on as an loan at Grimsby. Have you had to try and influence him in any particular way? And have you been strong handed? Have you taken a step back? Just let him get on with it. How have you? Must be because I'm in a similar situation. It's difficult not to want to almost overcoach them and over yeah. preach to them at times, especially when you're a dad as well. Yeah, I've, I've always tried to be there to give him advice if he wants it. Um, I'm certainly not over the top with him in full of praise. If anything, I'm a little bit more critical, but I don't go too far where I'm going to be um, uh, upset, affect is, his is, confidence is levels. Is, is it hard to be? coach and parent at times because I find that difficult I do, I do try easy. I do switch off quite easily to be fair um, saying that when he made his debut for Blackburn early in the season I was a bag of nerves because he's <laughs> kicking every ball and uh, we just want to do well don't yeah you? of course yeah, you do doesn't matter, doesn't, but matter, I think, doesn't matter what level it is you just want them to of course to you do the best and, and if he was playing cricket or swimming or whatever you'd want him to do well because it's part of the, the livelihood and growing up but I think because he's been in around me and I'm, I like to think I'm quite level-headed and he's seen, he's been into Blackpool and he's seen all sort of the different types of training grounds, for a better phrase, that he has he doesn't take anything for granted. So when he's gone to Grimsby the other week, um, Blackburn, he's got three training kits. He goes there, he's got one training kit, there's no tracksuit bottoms, there's no weight top. and But it hasn't affected him too much because... We've I've tried to keep him level-headed and he's been around enough to, to see that it isn't always like being at Man City, Everton, Blackburn in the Championship where the facilities are a top, top-notch. It's about what you do on them training pitches to make a living in the game. And it, it, him being at Grimsley now will be great for his development and hopefully for his long-term future. How difficult was it for you sometimes on the sidelines? I get it. I get frustrated with my lad all the time. Um bite me bite me tongue an awful lot pull me hair out um, <laughs> and it, it's not easy but also you, you've always got parents looking over or coaches looking at you thinking am I doing the right thing but I mean what used to I find bizarre the amount of parents that just assume that their lads in an academy that's it they're off they're going to play for Man United <laughs> Man City England you know and, and they're going to be the next Ronaldo how difficult is it managing their expectations at times it is it's very difficult and and if you look at the percentages of how many players actually make it from a particular age group, if, if you're in an under-15 age group, how many of that group of 18 players come through and make a living in the game? Not necessarily at the club that they're at now, but what they're going to do in the future. It is so, so low. We're very fortunate we've been able to make a living in the game for 20 years playing and, and now managing for 14 years myself. So it's it is, And that's where parents have to have a reality check. But also... It's tough for them because they do see all the trappings. The parents see what the first team players are driving and what houses they're living. And well, it's the under twenty one sometimes, yeah, well, under twenty three that they're yeah. driving. And and 
And I've always, it's always, it is difficult when you're watching your own son play and you're involved in the game. I just try and let people talk. I don't voice an opinion too much on things. I let people big up their own kids or this, that and the other. I'm very quiet and just stay out the way as much as I can to the point of put a hat on and scarf and glasses on out the way, <laughs> but it still doesn't work. No, you always get recognised no matter what. So finally now, Leeds are doing okay um, at the moment. I think we'd, we'd both love to see them back in the Premier League. How surprised have you been by Bielsa? Because I was a little bit, well, I didn't know which way it was going to go. Yeah. I thought it would be the big brilliant or disaster. And at the moment, it, it, it's hedging towards brilliant, although there's been a few bumps in the road. Yeah. It, look, it, I think when it got announced in the summer who's coming, it gave a big lift to the whole city. There was a big sort of um, buzz around the place. And the way they start the season, we're not spending a great deal of money. Fair credit to him. He's, he's world-renowned of being this coach, as I mentioned earlier. He hasn't reinvented the wheel. How, how hard would it be, the fact that he doesn't speak the language? So, I mean, imagine tomorrow you get a job in South America and you don't speak the language at all. How, how difficult oh, is that? It is. I would think it's extremely difficult. But he, he, must, he must have some form of... Um, communication with the players in English because I just don't know how, how you can relate certain information that you need to get across there and then rather than waiting for an interpreter and then it loses its impact well, off, on the Because often it's about tone, tonality, delivery, yeah. timing and if, you, if I've got to say it to you then you've got to say it to somebody else. It, it, all that must be lost but he comes across as this incredibly passionate manager, driven must be difficult to get that across in a different language. I think he, he probably speaks more English than he lets on. Um, but I think what he's done is, he was quite clever in the in the early part of the summer pre-season. He didn't have loads and loads of games. He spent a lot of time on the training pitch implementing the ideas of how we wanted to play for the season and getting that close bond of players together that if X came in to replace Y into the team. He knew exactly what they wanted to do in certain situations. And hence, that's why I think he's carried such a small squad, which could be a hindrance come the end of the season, picking up injuries, the intensity of the player. But it must be so difficult. I can't imagine somebody in South America listening to my dulcet Yorkshire tones. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know. And, and any, any job offers out there, you know, feel, feel free. Uh, this way. Uh, so, fine, obviously, this is all about sort of coaching, really. I mean, and, and especially grassroots coaching. You've gone through all the whole system, gone through all your badges. I think you're still uh, educating yourself yeah. now. Obviously, they're vitally important. But for those that are sort of the, just starting out, the, the beginning of their coaching careers, even just at an amateur level, what's the few little bits of advice that you can offer them well ultimately keep learning keep learning from every session um that you put on whether it's um fitness session or tactical session try and analyze what you've done you, can you improve it don't be happy just to settle that it's um you think it's gone well re revalidate yourself and have a look to see right can i do this better next time why didn't this work and and understanding um from practice to make better but ultimately learning from other people as well as you mentioned there I'm still learning now I still was up at Newcastle recently with Rafa watching them train and on LMA well, courses <laughs> <laughs> spent most of the time complaining about Mike Ashley to be fair <laughs> but it was but you are you're always learning and developing and but I think the biggest sort of message and I keep touching on it is 
get the players to enjoy it. Whether it's first team football, under eights, under twelves, they go into football because they they enjoy what they're doing. Don't take that out and let the natural ability come through. Yes, advise them, guide them, be an arm round them, know what players need to kick up the backside, who needs an arm round him, who needs cajoling. Um, and everybody feels better themselves when they're not being criticised. So somebody makes a mistake. I've always tried, whether it's reserves, first-team football is, yes, say, look, you've done that wrong, but can you do this better? Can you always be positive with players? Because you're ultimately going to get... Um, a better response from them and make them better all the time. So re-educating yourself or educating yourself, should I say, and also being positive with players, whatever age group it is, because we can all stand there on a touchline at whatever age group and have a right go at kids or um, players and it, it doesn't do them any good whatsoever. Brilliant. Right. Thanks, Simon. Good luck with whatever next venture is. Technical director, manager, coach, <laughs> father, driver. Yeah, whatever it might be. Uh, no, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. No worries. Thanks very much to Simon for joining us in the latest episode in season two of the Coaching Manual podcast. Thanks, everyone, for listening. You can keep up to date with the Coaching Manual on social media. Follow us on Twitter at Coaching Manual or on Instagram and Facebook at The Coaching Manual. Register for an account now for session planning tools, high quality coaching content and more essential resources for football coaches at thecoachemmanual.com.